Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called David and Goliath. It's underdogs, misfits, and the art of battling giants. And so for this particular segment, which actually is for my AP Lang class, and then some of my former college students will um, appreciate this, we're looking at the desirable disadvantage. And we're starting on page 106, page 106. So if you want to tune in, uh, please go. This is brought to you by Tommaso's Pizza. We're working on a sponsorship. Uh, let's say it's, uh, what, 20, 20% off. We'll go with that. And then we need to get pizza logs too. But anyway, just know that for tomorrow, there's a quiz on chapter um, six, seven, no, seven, eight, nine. Is that it? Seven, eight, nine. Quiz on Gatsby, seven, eight, nine. Um, there'll be about 15 to 20 multiple choice questions. And it's a quiz, but it's going to be counted, what, double? And that'll be a test grade. I'm committing to it. I'm committing to it. I don't even care. Um, and anyway, so this is uh, the start of the reading on page uh, 106. Um, can dyslexia turn out to be a desirable difficulty? It is hard to believe that it can, given how many people struggle with the disorder throughout their lives, except for a strange fact. An extraordinarily high number of successful entrepreneurs are dyslexic. A recent study by Julie Logan at City University London puts the number somewhere around a third. The list includes many of the most famous innovators of the past few decades. Richard Branson, the British billionaire entrepreneur, he's dyslexic. Charles Schwab, the founder of the discount brokerage that bears his name, you guessed it, is dyslexic. As are the cell phone pioneer, Craig McCall, David Nealman, the founder of JetBlue, and the list goes on. There are plenty of people who are. Also, the neuroscientist Sharon, and there's a whole bunch of names of people, basically. She, uh, this person remembers speaking in a meeting of prominent university donors, virtually all of them successful business people. And on a whim, she asked how many of them had been diagnosed with a learning disorder. It was astounding. Half the hands went up in the room. She said it was unbelievable. There are two possible interpretations for this finding. And it's that this remarkable group of people were able to triumph throughout their disability. They are so smart and so conscientious that nothing, not even a lifetime of struggling would stop them. The second, the more intriguing aspect is that they succeeded in part because of their disorder. That they learned something in their struggle that proved to be of enormous advantage. And that's what's so crazy about this whole thing. They learned something in their struggle that proved to be of enormous advantage. Would you wish dyslexia on your child? If the second of these possibilities is true, you just might. Part three. David Boys grew up in a farming country in rural Illinois. He was the oldest of five. His parents were public school teachers. His mother would read to him when he was young. He would memorize what she said because he couldn't follow what was on the page. He didn't begin to read until third grade. And by the way, guys, if you can't read by a third grade level, it's a high predictor that you won't pass high school. And then, and then did so only slowly and with great difficulty. Many years later, he would realize that he had dyslexia. But at the time, he didn't think he had a problem. His little town in rural Illinois wasn't a place that regarded reading well. 
as some crucial badge of achievement. Many of his schoolmates quit school to work on the farm in the first chance they got. At the first chance they got. Boys read comic books, which were easy to follow and had lots of pictures. He never read for fun. Even today, he might read one book a year, if that. He watches the television, anything, he says, that'll get him to laugh. And it has to move in color. It's kind of like, you know, like with like TikTok, that engages you. With videos, that engages you. With a lot of reading, it doesn't engage you, right? His speaking vocabulary is limited. He uses small words and short sentences. Sometimes, if he's reading something out loud and it, tur uh, and it turns into a word he doesn't know, he will stop and spell it out slowly. My wife gave me an iPad a year and a half ago, which was my first computer-like device. And one of the things that was interesting is that my attempt to spell many words is not close enough for spell check to find the correct spelling. Boys says... I can't tell you how many times I get the little messages that say no spelling suggestions. I don't know about you, but I get that on my phone all the time. When boys graduated from high school, he didn't have any great ambitions. His grades had been ragged. His family had moved to Southern California by then, and the local economy was booming. He got a job in construction. It was outside work. Construction. It was outside working with older guys. Boys remembered, I was making more money than I ever would have imagined. It was a lot of fun. After that, he worked for a while as a bookkeeper at a bank while paying a lot of bridge on the side. It was a great life. I could have gone on like that for a while. But after our first child was born, my wife became increasingly serious-minded about my future. She brought home brochures and pamphlets from local colleges and universities. He remembered a childhood fascination with the law and decided that he would go to law school. Today... David Boyes is one of the most famous trial lawyers in the world. Now, how Boyes went... How Boyes went from a construction worker with a high school education to the top of the legal profession is a puzzle, to say the least. The law is built around reading, around cases and opinions and scholarly analyses, and Boyes is someone for whom reading is a struggle. It seems crazy that he would even have considered law, but let's not forget... If you're reading this book or you're listening to this podcast, then you're probably a reader, or maybe you're better at listening. And that means you probably never really had to think of the shortcuts and strategies to bypass in order to get around reading. Boy started college at the University of Redlands, a small private university, and it was uh, an hour east of LA. Going there was his first break. Redlands was a small pond. Boys excelled there. He worked hard and was very well organized because he knew he had to be. Then he got lucky. Redlands required a number of core courses for graduation, all of which involved heavy reading requirements. In those years, however, one could apply to law school without completing an undergraduate degree. Mm, that would actually be really nice. He didn't have to complete an undergraduate degree, which is a four-year college degree. Boys simply skipped the core courses. I remember when I found out I could go to law school without graduating, graduating the, the, you know, the four-year degree. Uh, it was so great, I couldn't believe it. Law school, of course, required even more reading, but boys discovered that there, are su uh, there were summaries of the major cases, guides that would boil down the key point of a long Supreme Court opinion to a page or so. People might tell you that's an undesirable way to do law school. People are going to tell you that's an undesirable way to do law school. What is it? It's an undesirable way to do law school, but it was functional because he couldn't read, because he had dyslexia. Plus, he was a good listener. Remember when his mother would read to him stories and he'd memorize them? 
When you can't do something really well, you have to compensate in another area. For him, it was listening. And remember this, it was functional, but more importantly, it was formidable. He says, is something I've always done essentially my entire life. I learned to do it because that was the only way I could learn. I had to listen. I remember what people say. I remember words they use. So he would sit in class at law school while everyone else furiously made notes or doodled or lapsed into daydreams or faded in and out. People right now in my class, when I was 18 in class, I would sit there and sometimes I would notice people around me furiously taking notes because they wanted to take an AP class and they wanted to go to Cornell or they doodled because they were more into the arts because they couldn't figure out what the heck was going on in math class or English or it didn't capture their imagination or they lapsed into and out of daydreams or they faded in and out, focusing on what was said. What he did is what I had to do. I focused on what was said and I committed what I heard to memory. I literally focused on what was said in class and I committed what I heard to memory. His memory by that point was a, write this down, a formidable instrument. His memory by that point, and put this in your phone, it's important. It was a formidable instrument. It was formidable. He had been exercising it, after all, ever since his mother read to him as a child and he memorized what she said. His fellow students, as they made notes and doodled and faded in and out, they missed things. They missed things. His attention, or sorry, their attention was compromised. Boys didn't have that problem. He might not have been a reader, but the things he was forced to do because he could not read well turned out to be even more valuable. He started out at Northwestern Law School, then he transferred to Yale. Yale. When Boyce became a lawyer, he did not choose to practice corporate law. Remember that. That would be foolish. Corporate lawyers need to uh, make their way through mountains of documents and uh, appreciate the significance of the minor footnote on page 367. He became a litigator. Think alligator. He became a litigator, a job that required him to think on his feet. He memorizes what he needs to say. Sometimes in court, he stumbles when he has to read something and comes across a word he cannot process in time. So he stops and he spells it out like a child in a spelling bee. It is awkward. It's more of an, uh, like being eccentric. It's more of an eccentricity, though, than an actual problem. In the 1990s, he headed the prosecution team, um, and they were accusing Microsoft of antitrust violations. And during the trial, he kept referring to login as login because he's dyslexic. The dude in court in one of the biggest court cases ever where they went after Microsoft kept saying login instead of login, which is just the kind of mistake that a dyslexic makes. But he was devastating in the cross-examination of witnesses because there was no nuance, no subtlety evasion, no subtle evasion, no peculiar and telling choice of words that he would miss and no stray comment or revealing admission from testimony an hour or a day or a week before that he would not have heard, registered, and remembered. If I could read a lot faster, it would make a lot of things I do easier, boy said. There's no doubt about that. But on the other hand, not being able to read a lot and learning by listening and asking questions means that I need to simplify issues to their basics. And that is very powerful because in trial cases, judges and jurors, neither of them have the time or the ability to become an expert in the subject. One of my strengths is presenting a case that they can understand to the jury. That's his strength. He presents a case to the jury that they better understand because in a jury, they're overworked already. They're underpaid. They don't want to be there. And one of the biggest scams of our time right now is people trying to dip out of jury duty. So if they're there, you got to get to the damn point. Am I right? 
get to the point with the jury. He was likable and his strength was presenting a case that they could understand. His opponents tend to be scholarly types who had read every conceivable analysis of the issue at hand. Time and again, they get bogged down with excessive detail. Boys doesn't. One of his most famous cases, one of his most famous cases, it was Hollingsworth versus Schwarzenegger, asterisk, you can look it up, involved a California law limiting uh, marriage to a man and a woman. Boyes was the attorney arguing that the law was unconstitutional. And in the trial's most memorable exchange, Boyes destroyed the other side's key expert witness, David Blockenhorn, getting him to concede huge chunks of Boyes's case. One of the things you tell a witness when you're preparing them is to take your time, Boyes said, even when you don't need to, because there will be some times when you need to slow down and you don't want to show the examiner by your change of pace that this is something that you need to take time on. So when were you born? He spoke carefully and deliberately. It was 1941. You don't say it was March 11th, 1941 at six, 3.30 in the morning. Even though you're not trying to hide it, you want your response to be the same for the easy things as for the harder things so that you don't reveal what's easy and what's hard by the way you answer. When, when uh, Blankenhorn paused just a bit too much in certain crucial moments, boys caught it. He was so good at listening, he caught it. It was tone and pace and the words he used. Some of it comes from pauses. He'd slow down when he was trying to think of how to phrase something. He was somebody who, as you probed him and listened to him, you could hear areas where he was uncomfortable and they would obscure words. And by being able to identify that, he was able to get the other team that he was trying to take down to admit their case. That skill that he has, this is Boyce in part four. Boyce has a particular skill that helps to explain why he's so good at what he does. He's a superb listener. He's so good at listening. But think about how he came to develop that skill. Most of us gravitate naturally toward areas in which we excel. The child picks up reading easily and goes on to read even more and becomes better at it, ends up in a field where, well, it requires a lot of reading. A young boy named Tiger Woods is unusually coordinated for his age and finds that the game of golf suits his imagination, so he likes to practice golf. And because he likes to practice so much, he even gets better and on and on. It's a virtuous cycle. That, my friends, is called capitalization learning. We get it good at something by building on the strengths that we are naturally given. What is capitalization learning? We get good at something by building on the strengths that we are naturally given, but desirable difficulties have the opposite logic. That's page 112. The next reading will come next. I appreciate you for listening to this and I'll have it uploaded. And remember for tomorrow, we have the assessment, but more importantly, as we get grades and things in, I care more about you as a person than I do as, a, as an academic. And so I want you to make sure that you take care of yourself. You make post-it notes. You do the most important things that you need to do. Go for a walk, clear your head. Maybe just write down what you're feeling or talk to somebody who you trust, but you got to get it off your chest. That's more important. Thanks.